1850, Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote, How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and the breadth and the height my soul can reach. Most of us attribute that to Shakespeare. 1967, the Beatles put it a bit more succinctly. They said, and I quote, all you need is love. <laughs> and I'm not sure, but I think maybe Charles Schultz gets to the core of the issue when he says, love is sharing your popcorn. <laughs> yeah. But love isn't uh, confined to romance, friends. Gandhi said, where there is love, there is life. Direct link between love and life. Martin Luther King Jr. preached on the power of love. He said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Love is powerful. But beyond all of those things, the Bible makes the definitive statement on love. Now abides faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. That's part of our sermon text today, which is part of one of the most famous parts of the Bible. And... Uh, one of the most well-known and well-loved descriptions of love in the entire world. Our sermon text is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Would you please turn there with me in your copy of God's Word? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That's on page 959. As I said, 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the most well-known passages of Scripture. That's because we usually hear 1 Corinthians 13 read at weddings with Pachelbel's canon in D playing in the background. It's read and heard with a tone of sentimentality and romance. And whilst this chapter is certainly fitting for weddings, make no mistake, it is fitting for weddings and marriage, there's a good chance that we've missed the tone of 1 Corinthians 13. I like what David Helm said, No young woman in Corinth who heard that portion of, law, of Paul's letter read would have leaned over and whispered to her mother, We should read that at my wedding. Because originally, it was read and heard with a tone of admonition and rebuke, not sentimentality and romance. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13 because the Christians in Corinth were treating each other in an unloving way specifically concerning the issue of spiritual gifts. The Christians in Corinth envied one another. They boasted in their spirituality. They were arrogant and rude. They were self-centered, insisting on their own way. They were irritable 
and resentful of others, and it was causing division in the church. And Pastor Paul wrote this portion of his letter as an admonition and rebuke of their lack of love for one another. And he stated his purpose right before he gets into it. If you look in your copy of God's Word there at chapter 12, the last sentence, Paul said, I will show you a still more excellent way. A still more excellent way, specifically in this context of exercising spiritual gifts within the church, but even more broadly of living the Christian life with others inside and outside of the church. So let's read this uh, masterpiece on love. And whether we share the Corinthian specific problem with spiritual gifts or not, my prayer, friends, is that we will pursue this more excellent way so that our church will display God's love to one another and to our neighbors. Hear now God's word on love. 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been known fully. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love.
That's God's word. Amen, indeed. Chapter 13 was written by the Apostle Pastor Paul to address a problem in the church at Corinth that involved their understanding and their exercise of spiritual gifts. We have been learning that spiritual gifts, especially from chapter 12, are those qualities and abilities literally given to us by the Holy Spirit, given to each member of the church in a variety of forms as a manifestation of himself for the common good, so that the church will be built up. Well, the problem was, the Christians in Corinth viewed spiritual gifts as a mark of spiritual maturity, as a symbol of status. The more mature a person was, the the more prominent, more visible his gift would be. The higher status in the church, the, the more impressive the spiritual gift would be, or maybe vice versa, the, the more impressive gift meant that you were to have a higher status in the church. And so Paul addresses the specific issues that were going on in Corinth. We know what the problem was. What gifts did they specifically have in mind? Well, Paul lists them. Look in verse 1 and 2. Tongues, prophecy, and knowledge. Look at verse 8. He's repeating. Prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. You get the point? These were the kinds of gifts that they held in high esteem that would give great status and show tremendous spiritual maturity. Christians with those gifts acted as though they were superior, which then made those who did not have those gifts feel inferior. And that, my friends, was dividing the church. Now listen, let's be sure. Spiritual gifts were not the problem. It was their understanding and their exercise of spiritual gifts. Paul was not saying, listen, just forget about spiritual gifts and love one another. No, he wasn't contrasting them, pitting them against each other. In chapter 13, he's not disparaging, devaluing, or discouraging the use of spiritual gifts. Quite the opposite. Look before chapter 13. Look at chapter 12, verse 31. What does Paul say? But earnestly, what? Desire the higher gifts. Look after chapter 13, at chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love and, what are the next two words? Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Prophesy, sorry. So, Paul is in no way saying, forget about spiritual gifts. They're no good. Just love each other. No, no, no. Paul is saying here, I'm going to show you a, quote, still more excellent way to understand 
and exercise spiritual gifts within the church. And so, Paul shows us that love is that more excellent way. Love is the more excellent way, and he gives us three reasons why. Reason number one is in verse one through three. Love is the more excellent way because love is the true mark of spirituality, not spiritual gifts. Look there in verse one through three. If I speak in tongues, but don't have love, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, but I don't have love, if I give away all I have or, or deliver up my body, but I don't have love. Here's what we learn from verse one through three. Saying spiritual things, verse one, having spiritual gifts, verse two, or sacrificing in spiritual ways, verse 3, is not a mark of spiritual maturity. We must have what? Love. Spiritual people are not marked by what they say, what they have, or how they serve. Spiritual people are marked by love, not spiritual gifts. Love is absolutely essential for anything to qualify as spiritual. It's not spiritual if it does not have love. That's what we learn in verse 1 through 3. So Paul's point here is to redefine their understanding of love away from what they say, have, and do. But friends, isn't that common to all of us, not just Corinth? We think, wow, did you hear what he said? He must be spiritual. Do you, do you see what how they gave, how they served? They must be spiritual. And we might even think that about ourselves. We look to those things to determine our spiritual maturity. And Paul says they are all, what's the key word? Nothing. Zip, zero, zilch, nothing, nada, unless they also have love. So verse one, question, do we speak to others with love? Because if we say spiritual things without love, even if we speak like angels do. It's nothing but an irritating noise. Friends, giving true counsel, giving true instructions, giving needed correction is not effective unless it is said with love. Speaking the truth is not effective unless it's spoken with love. Love is what makes speaking
Verse 2. Do we have love along with our gifts and abilities? Because look there at verse 2. If we have spiritual gifts, even the higher gifts, like prophecy and knowledge and faith, faith to the extreme that you could, could move mountains, the kind of knowledge that understands all mysteries, if we have spiritual gifts without love, what does Paul say? We are nothing. He says, I am nothing. They were, they were rooting their identity and their status in, in the gifts that they had. And Paul says, those of you who think you are something because of your gifts, without love, you are nothing. So serving for years as a children's church teacher or a small group leader, serving for years as a deacon or a pastor is not an indication of spiritual maturity and it does not earn favor with God. In and of itself, those gifts and abilities are, keyword what? Nothing apart from love. So do we love as we serve? Do we serve because we love? Verse 3. Is love the real motivation behind our sacrifice and service? Is it really? Because... Paul is very clear. He, he goes to the extreme to say, look, if you make the most extreme sacrifice and it is motivated by something other than love, then you have gained nothing. He uses two examples. He says, if we give our bodies to be burned, which is this extreme example of self-sacrifice, and as extreme as it is, many Christians have endured that kind of martyrdom over the years, from the early Christians under Nero to the 16th century Christians like Latimer and Ridley and Cranmer under Bloody Mary, and it continues around the world today. If you were to make the most extreme sacrifice, even to the point of martyrdom, without love, you've gained nothing. Maybe more practical for us is his first one there in verse 3. If I give away all that I have, look, I give away. There's poverty all over Winchester, Virginia. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to sell everything I have, and I am going to feed the poor. Paul says, it's not spiritual. What are you talking about? I just sold everything I have to feed the poor. It's not spiritual unless what? Unless it's driven by love for the poor, which is motivated by love for Christ who has identified himself with us because we 
are poor. It's love that makes self-sacrifice profitable at all. Friend, here in verse 1 through 3, here's the reality. Spiritual words, spiritual gifts, spiritual service, minus love equals zero. Love, not spiritual gifts, is the defining mark of that which is spiritual. Love is the true mark of spirituality. Number two, Paul is showing us that love is the more excellent way because in verse four through seven, love is Christ-like, but their exercise of spiritual gifts was not. Love is Christ-like. Now you say, where do you get that? The fact is, God and Jesus are not mentioned anywhere in verse 1 through 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's not there. Huh. While Paul never mentions God's love for us, it's the basis for everything that Paul has ever written. He's already spoken about God's love for us in Christ as literally the theme of his letter to the Corinthians. He's talking about the cross being central to everything. God's love manifested in Christ as we read this morning that in this is the love of God made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In other words, we're all under a death penalty because of our sin. And God was not okay with that. He loved us enough to rescue us from the curse of sin and death. And he loved us enough to take the punishment and the justice on himself. God did that through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Keep reading. We all know John 3.16, but how about the rest of it? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Yes! Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But friend, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment Light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because our works are evil. Let 
Those who have received the love of God are not just called, but empowered. Love is a powerful, life-changing, transformative force that once you receive it, you want to share it with others. How could we possibly keep God's love to ourselves? Jesus said this to his disciples, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And so Paul is showing here that Jesus' love for us is both the pattern and the power for our love for one another. It's not just the pattern. It's not just be like Jesus, live like Jesus, love like Jesus. And then we're left under our own strength to try to do it, which, forget about it, ain't going to happen. No, 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 no. The spirit of Jesus, the spirit of love has indwelled us. Why? So that we can love one another as Jesus loved us. What does that look like? Well, read verse 4 through 7, and you'll see what it looks like. You'll see that Paul personifies love so that we can understand that love is a lifestyle. Fifteen descriptions, seven positives, eight negatives that deal with attitudes, words, and actions on the inside of us. And then look, verse 8 The life of love encompasses what? All things, all things, all things that come at us from the outside. Love controls from the inside and enables us to respond to that which is on the outside. Jesus' love for us is the pattern and power for us to love one another. What does that look like? Verse 4, love is patient. Aren't you so glad that God is patient? <laughs> what if he wasn't? Patience is forbearing. Patience is Forbearing the differences, the weakness of others. So let me ask you a question. Are, are you patient with those who are weaker, less competent than you? I'm glad God is. Verse 4 goes on, love is kind. Listen, kindness is love in action. I love the fact that uh, Tertullian says about the early Christians that they were called the kind ones often instead of the Christians because the word in the original language only has one letter different. And they were marked by kindness. So much so that people called them the kind ones instead of the Christ ones. Question, would anyone call you, 
or me that? Does kindness define our lives? It certainly defined Jesus Christ. He continues. After two positive, Paul gets straight to the heart. This is what's so funny about reading these at weddings. Please, we should continue to read this at weddings. But Paul is getting serious. He says, love is patient and kind, not like you. <laughs> he's, he's, he's saying not this way, not how you're acting toward one another, which is what? Love does not envy. Envy is striving after something that's not yours. They were comparing themselves with others and, and they were seeing themselves as better than each other. And many were envious and jealous of what someone else had. Do you, do you find yourself jealous of the gifts and successes of others? That's division in your own heart toward others. That's not love. That's envy. Continue, love does not boast. This is the image of a, of a pompous windbag. Be, be honest. I had to be this week as I was studying this. He might as well too. Be honest. Do your relationships struggle somehow unintentionally because you give others the sense that your opinion, your intellect, your ability is better than theirs? That's not love. That's a spirit of boasting. And while we may not do it aggressively, purposefully, those of us who struggle with that, it just comes out. Paul continues, love is not arrogant. Very similarly, to be arrogant is to take credit for, to be puffed up about something that was given to you, something that you have no business taking credit for. This word, arrogant, is only used seven times in the New Testament. Seven times. Guess how many times it's used in 1 Corinthians? Six out of the seven times. Think it was a problem? Absolutely. Not just them. It's us too. In chapter 8, Love, I mean, uh, Paul did a play on word. He says, love builds up, but arrogance blows up, tears down. Love is not arrogant. Verse 5, love is not rude. To, to be rude is to act indecently toward someone else. I thought it was interesting that Paul uses this same word in chapter 12 when he talked about the unpresentable parts. Same adjective form of this as rude, indecent parts. Is there any chance that we treat others, especially those we don't really like, in a rude way? Or, or might we flip that over and, and let me ask it in the positive. Do you really treat others, even those you don't like, with honor and respect? That's love. He continues in verse 5, love does not insist on its own way. That's not love. Why? Because love always seeks the other person's good, not my own. Love is others-focused, others-minded, self-sacrificial. 
That's the love of Jesus for us. Jesus did not glorify himself by gathering all of the glory on earth to himself. He came in humility and in poverty. He came and bore our sins so that we could be redeemed and through his sacrifice, he would be glorified. Love sends us on that same self-sacrificial, others-minded road. But all too often, we insist on our own way. So let me ask you a question. Did others-mindedness characterize last week for you? Love is not irritable. Irritable is a fine word. ESV uses it. I'm sure that they know what they're talking about here. But many other translations give uh, a bit more teeth to it. Love is not being provoked by anger. That's the idea behind this. So let me ask you the question, do you get worked up easily? It's not love. It's not the spirit of love working you up in that way. That's irritability and anger. He says love is not resentful. Now, this was fascinating to read about this week, a very interesting image. Resentfulness is actually a word that comes from the accounting industry. It's an accounting word that means keeping the books. Love does not keep the books on others' wrongs done to you. Keeping the books of others' wrongs. Why? Because we're going to demand justice. No, instead, love is forgiving. Verse 6 Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. You can see this settledness into a lifestyle of just going in the wrong direction here. That's what was happening in the church at Corinth with these elitists. They, we've seen throughout the whole letter now, just think back to our study, chapter by chapter, the elitists have aligned themselves with their favorite spiritual leaders. They've taken one another to court. They're eating food offered to idols in the idols' temples, thinking there's nothing wrong with that. They're ignoring the poor during the Lord's Supper. They're elevating their own gifts. What are they doing? They're settling into this thinking that's okay. They're delighting in those activities rather than turning away from them and in rejoicing in what God calls us to in the truth. Then verse 7, probably most famous of all of this list, verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The key there, other than the verbs, is the all things. This is an exhortation to not allow anything, nothing, to stop your love or divide the church. Anthony Thistleton says, there is nothing love cannot face. There is no limit on love. He rephrases these four last phrases like this. Love never tires of support, never loses faith, 
never exhausts hope, never gives up. I appreciated the the warning from Paul Gardner, who said about this, love bears all things, believes all things, hope all things, endures all things. Make no mistakes, friends. Love is not soft. Love doesn't tolerate all things, promote all things, and deny absolutely nothing. Since true love is seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ, love tells the truth about sin. Love calls for repentance, and then love sacrifices itself to rescue those who are in the bondage of sin. Love is not soft. It must never be reduced to greeting card platitudes and heart emojis. Nice. Paul's point here in verse 4 through 7 is to show us Christ's love, which is both the pattern and the power for every aspect of our relationships with each other. I encourage you to spend some time with this list this week. Ask yourself the question, you personally, are you exhibiting the love of Christ in your relationships? Love is Christ-like. The way they were exercising their spiritual gifts was not. Paul is showing us that love is the more excellent way because, number one, love is the true mark of spirituality, not spiritual gifts. Number two, love is Christ-like, but their exercise of spiritual gifts was not. And now love, uh, pardon, uh, point number three, love is eternal. Spiritual gifts are not. Look at verse 8, 8 through 13. I won't read all of it right now for lack of time, but let me just begin with verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, what? They'll pass away. How about tongues? They'll cease. Knowledge? It'll pass away but not love. Love is eternal. Spiritual gifts are not. Love is eternal. Spiritual gifts are not. Is that as unexpected to you as it surely was to the Corinthian church? Look, love is eternal. Verse 8, never ends. Verse 13, it abides. Spiritual gifts are temporary. Verse 8, they pass away, they cease. Look what he says in verse 9 through 11. Love is complete. Spiritual gifts are only partial. Love is complete. Look at verse 12. Full, full, full. But spiritual gifts, verse 9 and 10, in part, partial. See the contrast? 
And Paul gives an example, two examples here to explain what he means by love is the more excellent way because love is eternal and complete. Spiritual gifts are temporary and partial. Why was that important? Because the Corinthians acted as if spiritual gifts were ultimate. Spiritual gifts were eternal. Spiritual gifts were the mark of spiritual completion, perfection, and maturity. Paul says, no, love is eternal and complete, not spiritual gifts. So he gives two illustrations in verse 11 and 12 to explain what he means. Illustration number one, Paul focuses on how some things are temporary. So look there at verse 11. He gives an example of how and why gifts, spiritual gifts, are temporary and fade away. Some things are only temporary and serve a particular age, like childhood. Verse 11 When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. It looks like he's probably targeting the gift of tongues there because he emphasizes speaking in that. Regardless, what he's saying here is spiritual gifts are suited where? To this age, not the next. His second illustration, verse 12 He emphasizes things that are partial versus things that are full. He's giving an example of how spiritual gifts are only partial. Verse 12. For now, notice notice the contrast, now and then. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know Fully, even as I have been fully known. Just like in a mirror, we only see a partial image. We only know what we can see. But in a face-to-face relationship, person-to-person, we see and know the person more deeply and more fully. It's, It's the difference between viewing someone's social media page and actually having a real-life relationship with them. Our knowledge is partial if it's only social media. But in a real relationship, it is full and complete and not even like the fullness of how God knows us and how we will know like God knows, Paul says there at the end of verse 12. When do these spiritual gifts pass away? So if they're, if they're temporary and partial, when do these spiritual gifts pass away? Well, verse 10, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. The age-old question is this, what is the perfect? Well, I grew up hearing that the perfect was the perfect canonization of the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. I no longer believe that because I think reading this makes it clear that the perfect is the perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ, coming to set up his perfect kingdom where everything is restored back to the way God intended it to be. 
Notice three contrasts that bring me to this conclusion. Verse 8, eternal things versus things that are passing away. Verse 9 through 12, that which is partial versus that which is full. Verse 12, now versus then. All of these point to the perfect being eternal, full, and not now, but then. So when the perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes and sets up his perfect kingdom, then spiritual gifts will no longer be necessary. Why? Because we will be glorified. We will no longer know or understand in part. But Paul ends with an exclamation point here. Not only is love superior to spiritual gifts, but love is even superior to all of the other things that continue on in eternity. Look at verse 13. What abides? Just love? No. So now faith, hope, and love abide. They're not partial. They're not temporary. Faith, hope, and love abide. They're eternal, these three. But even among those three, the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. Listen, friends, read the Bible cover to cover, and what you will find out is that the Bible exalts love to the position par excellence. Love is one of the defining attributes of God. We read in our text earlier, God is love. There's not very many of those statements in the scripture. God is holy. God is love, and there's not much else. God is faithful. Defining attribute of God. Love defines the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anytime we read about the sacrifice of Christ, it is always in the context of love. The sacrificial love. Ephesians chapter 5. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And because of that, love leads the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, doesn't it? Position par excellence. When Jesus was asked the question by that young lawyer, what's the greatest commandment of all? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That is the great and first commandment. And the second one is just like it. You shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the greatest of all. And Jesus said, here's how the world will know 
that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Paul said to the church at Corinth, what you're doing is not love. I want to show you a more excellent way. In Chester Baptist Church, my desire this morning, my prayer today, is that we would pursue this more excellent way of love. Note the verb. We would pursue love because that's how Paul starts the next section. Chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. May we pursue love so that this church will display God's love to us by our love for one another and for those with whom we come in contact. Let's pray together. God of love and grace and mercy, we thank you that you extinguished your wrath against our sin on your own son on the cross and that you raised him from the dead proving that he is who he says he is so that all who will come to Christ will have forgiveness of sins and eternal life so that all who come to Christ will receive one of the greatest gifts that we could ever receive, the indwelling spirit of Christ that is the indwelling spirit of transformative love so that we can display your love to everyone we come in contact with. May you be glorified as we do so in our homes, in our church, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and even around the world. We thank you for your love in Jesus' name. Amen.